also, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16? Uh, we are continuing in our series on parables. Uh, over the course of this season, we've been looking at a number of different parables uh, as taught to us by Jesus. Uh, and while you're turning there, uh, I just want to share a little story with you uh, as a means of uh, introducing uh, today's parable. When I was a student in the late 80s, uh, there was, uh, I was a student in Southampton, at Southampton University, and uh, for a very brief period of about three days, uh, a cash machine, uh, not far from the, the university campus, uh, dis, uh, developed a fault in as much as it is that it gave out more money than it should have done. Uh, so you'd put your, your card in and uh, you would ask for 50 quid and it would give you 100 quid. It was, it was tremendous. Now, and what was extra tremendous about it was that it didn't, the extra money didn't show up in your account. And so people checking their statements like quickly afterwards realized, oh, hold on a minute, there's free money here. And uh, needless to say, uh, the cash point got to become the, 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 you know, the most popular place in town very, very quickly with all the students. And then the bank realized that there was a problem. And after, I think it was the end of day two, beginning of day three, the bank suddenly clocked that this was going on and they uh, switched the cash machine down and they, uh, they, they kind of turned it off and they found that there was a fault with it. Uh, and basically the, the counting technology was picking out two notes rather than one. And so it would always give you double the amount of money, but it didn't seem to show up on your account. Um, now, I, I always remember this story, and it was, a, it was a kind of, I didn't actually get cash out. Can I just say that I didn't do that, right? Um, but a lot of my friends did. Um, but imagine for a moment, that wasn't a technical problem. Imagine it was a bank manager being generous problem. Imagine the bank manager had this real heart for student ministry, and he kind of decided one day, do you know what? All of the students who have accounts here and all the people who come to my bank, they need to have a double blessing. You know, we need to kind of be a little bit more kind here. If that happened, some senior executive somewhere would have come along and said to that bank manager, no, you can't do that. In fact, you're fired. You're going to have to stand down now because that's not what we do. I wanted to share that story because I think it kind of leads quite well into what has to be one of the most awkward and peculiar parables Jesus has ever taught, the parable of the dishonest manager, Luke chapter 16. So we're going to read through that together. Uh, follow along in your Bibles. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 9. He, that's Jesus, is speaking, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? Uh, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, 
so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Have you ever seen or read something in the Bible and thought to yourself, hold on a minute, something's not quite right here, and you've looked through it, and you're just really, really puzzled. The very last thing we are expecting for the dishonest manager is a commendation, is some praise. I decided I'd go through this parable and just jot down all my objections to it. I'm not trying to be heretical. I just wanted to go through and understand why it was that I had so many negative reactions to what's being taught here. What is going on? I thought to myself. So I I listed these problems out and I thought, hey, why don't we use that as the start of a message and let's go through some of the issues that lie in this parable. The first one is, are the charges brought to the rich man actually true? There's no evidence from the parable that the rich man does any fact-finding for himself. You know, Joseph in the Old Testament went to prison unjustly for two years on the false testimony of Potiphar's wife. Nobody did any fact-finding. Surely just a quick bit of fact-finding would be appropriate here. We don't just fire people on the basis of unverified reports. Second problem, the rich man stands the manager down from his position before he even checks his account. Is that the way we treat people? Surely it would be better to check over the manager's report and see what it actually says before coming to a decision. Uh, If this were uh, like, for instance, a present-day employment tribunal, the manager would have a great case uh, to take the rich man to court for not following a proper process. He would say in front of the tribunal, well, look, I got fired before they even turned in my report. I think a third problem is the rich man seems to have allowed the dishonest manager too much responsibility and then he's got caught out by that. And I think that that's actually the rich man's fault. You know, if I'd have been the rich man, I'd have stayed more closely connected with my manager's work and I would have asked for regular reports on all my assets and my wealth and how things were going. Surely, effective delegation keeps you in touch but without doing all the work. So... I might not have lost all this money that the dishonest manager writes off for me, and then I myself couldn't then be accused of poor stewardship, which, to be fair, actually does come up in quite a lot of other parables that Jesus teaches, like the parable of the talents. You know, what person of great wealth delegates so much that they lose all touch with that money? Do we see that with Alan Sugar on The Apprentice? Yeah, just have the 250,000, you know, come back in a year's time. Come see, come sir, whatever. You know, we don't see that, do we? He's tightly over it and checking it all the way. Problem number four, when we compare the apparent but unproven, as we've suggested, squandering of the goods in this parable with the squandering of the inheritance in the previous parable, and I think it's fair to make that connection because it's the same word in the Greek for squandering in both parables, immediately, so we have this parable immediately before the dishonest manager, the, the parable of the prodigal son, what we notice in the, about that is the father in the prodigal son doesn't seem to be that bothered that his youngest son has just lost all his inheritance. He's just delighted that his son re- has returned, and that's fine. Now, the older brother does make a valid point. Now, albeit it's from not a very nice place, that the younger brother has wasted all his money. But all the father says, once the younger son has returned, is, well, all I have is yours. And so here's my issue. 
Why does one parable gloss over the loss of all of someone's possessions and their inheritance, but the very next parable makes a focal point of just a partial loss? What's going on there? That doesn't seem very consistent to me. My fifth problem, and I have a few more after this, you're gonna to have to bear with me. The manager's self-talk when he is confronted with being fired, honestly, it's nonsense. You'd expect that kind of talk from a lazy teenager, and that's being unfair to teenagers. You know, he tells himself that he's too weak to dig. Like, too weak to dig? Well, tough, you shouldn't have like mismanaged your boss's money. Get out there and dig some ditches and be a man. And then what is I'm too ashamed to beg? What about that phrase, beggars can't be choosers? When you've got nothing, you kind of have to do whatever it takes to survive to make life work, surely, don't you? So let's put the digging and the begging issues to one side for a moment. The manager in our parable, and this is problem number six, seems to settle upon a solution that hopes for and depends upon and counts on the goodwill of others. He's erased himself from any responsibility. You know, whatever happened to being responsible and working hard and being the solution to your own problems, problems that, by the way, you've created for yourself. What about all those proverbs that tell us not to be lazy and to work hard and be diligent? And this dishonest manager just goes, oh, well, I'll get bailed out. Problem number seven. The manager seems to take a calculated risk that his action in reducing the debts will effectively get favor with those who owe the rich man these goods. Isn't that just another way of saying corruption? Don't we just hate it when we hear in the news uh, that someone got favor because it was found that money changed hands in a way that was not properly audited or above board? We hate that, and rightly so. You know, I, I knew a pastor once who got offered 20,000 pounds by a developer to ensure that that pastor picked that developer in a, in a situation of competitive tendering for development of that pastor's church. Now, the pastor rightly refused the bung. He said, no, we're not doing that. We don't do that uh, as Christians. And he ruled that company out of the bidding. And we'd all be you know, disappointed and disapproving if he hadn't done that. You know, we'd be asking questions over his integrity, wouldn't we? My eighth problem. Isn't it wrong for those in debt to the rich man to be given permission to rewrite their debts themselves in their own handwriting? Notice how the manager says, take your bill and write a new lower figure. Actually, that means that the audit trail of the reduction is now lost because it's now in their, their handwriting and not in the manager's handwriting. It's in the writing of those owing the debt. That doesn't seem proper to me. That seems like a fudge. Issue number nine, what is the deal about asking to do this quickly? When has strong accounting and effective stewardship ever been about rushing things through? Shouldn't we be taking things a little bit more slowly and following due diligence and having steps and a quality procedure and all that stuff with this amount of money going on? Instead, it's in this parable, it's sit down quickly and write yourself a different debt. And number 10, biggest problem of all, but not the final one, on the subject of writing ourselves a different debt, wouldn't we just love it to be able to go to our bank manager, perhaps the one in Southampton, and hear him say about our loan, oh, sit down quickly, uh, come in, sir, sit down quickly, and instead of 5,000, you can now make it 3,000. Yeah, um, you know, people would queue up to become a customer of such a bank like that, 
And they would transfer all their borrowing over, wouldn't they? In the hope of getting some further discounts for themselves. But at the same time as that, we would also privately wonder about the financial viability of such a bank and such a practice. And we'd ask ourselves, well, how long could such a scam like that last? And what would be the damage uh, when it all comes out about what's been going on? Someone somewhere is going to have to pay for us being let off our responsibilities, surely, we would say to ourselves. Problem number 11, bear with me, I have more. It's really, uh, you know, is it really appropriate to conclude this parable by pointing out how clever this manager has been, how shrewd he's been? And by making the point that the people in the world are more sharp or more shrewd than the sons of light, which we can take to mean you and I, the people who belong to the kingdom of God. I read that and I was, to be honest, I was a little bit insulted. I was like, Jesus, I haven't left my brains at the door. And you're saying I'm not as shrewd as somebody in the world who makes, to be honest, like a bit of a poor set of decisions, in my opinion, dishonest. Problem number 12. Is it ethical to use unrighteous wealth? And a side question, whatever that is, what is unrighteous wealth? As a means to make friends. Why can't we use righteously generated wealth in our relationships with others? And on top of that, why can't we just make friends just purely for friends' sake without a cash agenda in the background? I'd be very annoyed if someone came to me and they'd helped me out of a debt situation and then they were like trying to hang on as my friends because like I owed them something. That's weird. We don't form friendships on the back of that kind of stuff. Last problem, problem number 14. You can heave a sigh of relief now. How can we sh be sure that these friends that are mentioned in the parable will actually indeed receive us into eternal dwellings? What does that even mean? I thought it was Jesus' job to decide uh, at the end of our lives whether we knew him or not, or whether we were his friend or not, and on that basis he would then decide to receive us into heaven or not. When has a you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours very questionable financial transaction had anything to do with our eternity. Okay, so that's how my, well, frankly, heretical brain was working for the first part of my sermon preparation. And at this point, I went downstairs and I made myself a cup of tea. And I kind of pondered and I thought, how on earth am I going to preach this? Because I have stacks and stacks of questions. And I think I've been fair in articulating all the objections that some of us have to this parable. And I thought, I know what, I think I've been asking lots of questions. Let's go and use the search in Microsoft Word for the question mark character, and I'll find out exactly how many questions I've got. So I went trogging back upstairs to my cup of tea, and I did control F, put the character in, question mark, and it came up with 48. So I've just hit you with 48 questions about this parable. That's a lot of questions to be asking of a parable taught by Jesus. So if you have ever read the parable of the dishonest manager or the unjust steward as it's known also, and you've come away wondering what to make of it, you are in very good company. Bible scholars and theologians around the world and down the ages have really struggled with this parable. They've all wrestled with it. In my opinion, I think this is the hardest parable to understand. There, I've said it. It's the hardest one. And in fact, if you, asked, if you were going to ask me to create a league table of awkward parables, this would be at the top. Very, very difficult. So, we've all got a drawer in our spiritual filing cabinet that none of us really like to admit we've got. 
And it's called Things I've Not Really Understood in God's Word. Yeah? Because let's have a quick show of hands. We've all got that, haven't we? Oh, you're, you're all better than me. Anyway, I've got a few little kind of questions in that drawer. And every now and then I get them out and go, oh, uh, no, I can't look at that now. Um, but this one, when Pastor Mark suggested we were going to teach on parables, something in me went, no, let's just kind of unpack this properly. Let's get into this. Let's look at why this has always perplexed me and troubled me. I need to know some answers, Lord God. You know, I really dislike leaving things unanswered or misunderstood, and I want to get behind it. And I think it's actually really important that we put a little bit of work now and then into God's word and actually understand what's going on and get less confused about what he's saying. So let me open how I'd like to approach how we can understand this parable. Let me begin in a slightly different place. I'd like to start by saying that I think this parable is to parables what the book of Jonah is to the Old Testament prophets. I think it's upside down, it's round the wrong way, it's back to front, it's inside out, and it's full of all sorts of things that make you raise your eyebrows in a way that is deliberately a little bit tongue-in-cheek, if I'm honest. Now, for those of you who don't speak English as a first language, tongue-in-cheek means, we use that phrase to mean, this is a wry or a dry joke. Okay? So for anyone here this morning, sorry, uh, uh, so if, you, if you've read uh, Jonah this morning, and you've read that the, the least polished sermon ever from the most unwilling and sulky prophet ever, has caused the largest ever revival in the Bible, you have to think to yourself, seriously? Is that right? And uh, when you read the parable of the dishonest manager and that by reducing some debts, he made himself some mates, you think, seriously, is that right? And perhaps most glaring of all, when you spot the turnaround between being fired one moment, then praised the next by the same man this rich man, you think, seriously, something is upside down with the teaching in this parable. What is going on? And yet, and yet, lying in everything in God's word, are, I believe firmly there are deep and incredible treasures, which we must always trust are just waiting for us to find. Okay, so there's loads that we could say about this parable, literally loads. The scholarly material on it goes on forever. But here's a super quick survey of what could be, I think, three of the reasons that the rich manager ends up getting praise for what he does. Okay? Uh, and, and there's lots more that gets said, but I think it boils down to these three reasons. Now, by the way, I don't actually think these are the reasons, but this is what the commentators say. And I'm not trying to put myself above a commentator. I just read a lot of stuff, and I kind of thought, no, that's, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right to me in the spirit. What are you trying to say, Lord? And I'm going to take you in a new direction with this parable in just a bit. But hear me when I say what these reasons might be. First of all, one group of people are saying, in giving the discounts, maybe the manager decided to cut the commission out that he was due for himself. It's possible, but if you think about it, commission is normally a percentage that's smaller than 50%, isn't it? I mean, that's a big, fat commission, surely. It doesn't, and it's possible, I guess. So, you know, I wouldn't rule that out. It's possible. The second thing is that there's another group of uh, a scholarly opinion suggests that this was done in order to overcome the, the problem of, of charging interest using money. Now, in Jewish law, you can't do that. 
so that's forbidden. You, you're not allowed to add interest to, to loans that are made. And so what people did to get around that was that they added more collateral or goods uh, onto debts instead of money. And they would use common things like wheat or oil as a form of currency, actually. And so what happens in this explanation is that the dishonest manager decides to cut down this, uh, this way of charging the interest, and it returns the debt to what it had originally been all along. And so under this explanation, the rich man actually does get back all of what he was owed, and the dishonest manager gets praised because his action puts the rich man back inside Jewish law where before he was outside it. Does that make sense? Yeah? Now, I think that is possible, and it's actually quite a clever argument. But it seems unlikely as an explanation to me. And I don't think it's the point that Jesus is trying to make in this parable. You know, Jesus is pretty uh, strong against abuse of, of religious law. And he has a go at the Jewish leaders. And, you know, he's, he's quite anti that. And I think he would have teased that out and made that the focus of the parable. But he doesn't do that. The third possible explanation is that perhaps the debts had been hard to collect, but by reducing the amounts, the, manager managed to, uh, the dishonest manager manages to get an influx of cash. Um, now, one of, the things that you, one of the things that a lot of companies these days, especially if they're trying to uh, recoup a, a debt, is that they will, they, they'll actually settle for slightly less than the full debt. So if you, let's say you owe 10,000 pounds to a company or to a bank or something, it's possible to negotiate that and say, listen, if I pay you now, would you take 8,500 and we'll just call it quits? Now, I know that sounds crazy, but actually some banks will go for that because they know that they're going to get the thing sorted. It's not complete, but at least they've got, they've got definite money in their hand now. Uh, and so they don't need to wait forever and a day for the possibility, which may not ever materialize, of having the money back. So I get that. But again, I don't, really I don't really sense that that's what this parable is about. I think there's mileage in all of those ideas. And I think when you tackle a hard problem in the Bible, it makes total sense to get the commentaries out, go to the library, have a look, see what people are saying, and do your research. But I want to boil all the talk and all the questions and all the puzzles and all the possibilities in, in the discussion down to just one single main point and one underlying main truth under that main point that I think that this parable is about. This is what I think. And I actually think the Holy Spirit's led me to this and revealed this to me and I feel very privileged that he's done that. I don't think this parable is about money at all. It uses money to have a conversation and to make a point but it's not about money at all. It's not about stewardship. And that's why we have all these questions, because we're trying to apply some answers in the stewardship realm to something that it's not about, even though it's using stewardship as an illustration. I think we get wrong-footed. I think it's all about the fact that the manager acts decisively to secure his future because he senses some amazing grace is available. It's about grace, and it's about something spiritual. It's not about the money. So his action is a picture of what our, our action needs to be when we meet with Jesus and we realize that the kingdom of God has drawn near to us. So Jesus uses the parable to say that people can use a lot more skill and speed to secure a destiny in the world than people use to secure an eternal destiny out of the world. It's a comparison technique. 
So what Jesus is doing is saying is if, if that over here, which is like little, then what about this? How much more this, which is much larger? That's what he's doing. Now he does that in the, just to give you a, an illustration of where that's more easy to see, he does it in the parable of the unjust judge. So in that story, for example, the, uh, there's a corrupt and an unjust judge uh, who eventually gives in to a widow's demands. And the point is that if God is able to, uh, sorry, that if he is able to listen to the widow, then how much more will God listen to our prayers? So we've got an unjust judge, persistent widow. If that works and, and she gets her answer, how much more will it work when we go to God and we, and we know that he's not corrupt and not unjust? Does that make sense? Okay, so it's a, if that, how much more this? That's what's going on in this parable too. The rich man does not condemn the dishonest manager, but praises him instead, him instead because he recognized in a worldly situation that his moment of accountability and judgment had arrived, and he acted quickly to respond. And so that's the little bit that we get presented with in the parable, but the big truth, the this to compare it with, is that Jesus wants people to hear his message about the kingdom of God drawing near, and creating some accountability and some urgency, and that we're to act quickly and decisively and not just carry on business as usual. In other words, when Jesus wanders into our life, we need to respond, and we need to respond fast. In fact, we must act decisively and quickly in order that we sort out our future with a sense of urgency. So listen, listen to this. I would summarize the parable of the dishonest manager in one sentence like this. The kingdom of heaven works on Jesus' grace, not our payback or the return of debts. And so we must jump on board with it much faster than we would respond to news about a cash machine paying out double money. That is the core message of this parable. Now, this gets even deeper and even better than that when we start to understand that and this is the deep underlying kind of faith truth that lies underneath this, when we realize and understand that this parable works as a part two in tandem with the parable of the prodigal son, which is part one. Now, I'm pretty confident that very few of you in here, if anyone, will have heard that teaching before. We read the parable of the prodigal son, and we go, oh, fantastic, isn't God amazing? And then we read the parable of the uh, unjust manager and go, Hmm, what's that? And we move on quickly. That's really what happens, isn't it? And then we get into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and, and all the rest of it. But I actually think these two parables work together as a pair, like a part one and a part two around the same theme and a, the same concept. The reason we get offended by the parable of the dishonest manager is we're sitting there just waiting for him to get his just rewards for his false dealings, right? Yeah? You with me? We want a neat, moral, tidy ending in which the just desserts get dished out to this guy. How can he do that with his boss's money, we exclaim in our minds. Why on earth is the rich man now praising this? That makes no sense. What kind of a turnaround is this, we're asking? Now, here's what's going on. I think Luke has been really sharp putting this parable immediately after the parable of the prodigal son. What he does, and this is where... It's going to hurt you, okay? It's going to be, it's going to be a, a moment where you look at yourself and you go, oh, 
Okay? He exposes a hypocrisy we all have inside us by having these two parables side by side. How does that work? This is how it works. We're up in arms because of the lousy attitude of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, aren't we? We're just like, wow, older brother, you are so full of judgment. You're so cold. You're so religious. Why can't you see that your younger brother was lost and is now found and now he's getting mercy and he's just back? Why can't you be happy about that? Why can't you see that, that you know, your dad is being kind and loving? And isn't it lovely that the, the dad receives the younger son back? And why can't you see that? Why, older brother, are you standing about moaning religiously about not even getting a young goat when you can see a much bigger thing has gone on? And by the way, while we're having those thoughts, we're thinking to ourselves, oh, is our heavenly father really that lovely to us that he'd take us back? And we start getting all misted up about how much we're loved by God and how he lets us off stuff and back into his household and rightly so. And listen, I am not demeaning that for one second. When you read the parable of the lost son, oh, it blows you away. It's the most loved parable, I would say, in the whole Bible, in all of Jesus' teaching. But guess what? In the very next parable, here we are, typecast as the older brother, incensed at the injustice of the dishonest manager. He should pay it all back. He's got debts. He's rung those debts up. How dare he steal from his boss? And Luke, the writer, is sitting there laughing wryly at us and saying, Dear readers, I've caught you out good and proper. You wanted mercy so much for the lost son, but now, seconds later, you're turning to the next parable and you want justice for the dishonest manager. The sequence of the two parables is masterful at leading us into a trap of our own making and it exposes our hypocrisy. The parable of the dishonest manager effectively puts us in the position of being the older brother of the previous parable. And we have to stand, we're standing outside that celebration with our arms folded, full of judgment. We find ourselves simply unable to join in with the rich man's change of direction in this parable. Just as the older brother simply can't bring himself in from the fields and join the party in the previous parable. And this is why the comparison with Jonah is a great one. Jonah sulks, just like the older brother does in the prodigal son. And just like we do when we read that the rich man is now pleased, surprisingly, with the shrewd manager. Here's the bottom line about what Luke is saying by putting these parables back to back. We are either a person pleased about grace, or we're a person who can't be pleased because we're angry about injustice. We're good with a turnaround from the father in the prodigal son story. Yeah, great. But are we good with a turnaround from the rich man in the dishonest manager story? Are we good with a turnaround from God towards the Ninevites in the story of Jonah? Or are we standing outside the celebration like the older brother, moaning and sulking in the desert and getting all focused on our one tiny, measly, unfair vine problem when 120,000 people have just turned back to God? I'll put it to you that Luke has caught us out good and proper by putting these two parables side by side because without realizing it, we've swapped sides and we've jumped from mercy to judgment in going from one parable to the next. We've switched from all gooey and grateful in the one parable and like, oh, Heavenly Father, you're so lovely, 
And then all indignant and angry and moral and religious in the next. And we've fallen for Luke's clever trap. And we've also missed Jesus' extremely astute teaching about the real nature of grace, which is that it's profoundly unfair. And it's totally dishonest match for our profoundly sinful selves. That's the dishonesty of this, of this uh, parable. Please can the worship team come and join me as we, uh, as, as we carry on. Uh, and you can start playing. I want to make a, an observation about this parable. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The Lord is the earth and everything in it, right? You know that, you know that verse. Yeah. Well, could it be that the, the rich man is actually God? And could it be that the dishonest manager is Jesus? Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus is constantly winning thousands upon thousands of heaven-destined friends every day by writing down and reducing and eliminating spiritual debt? Have you ever had that thought before? That Jesus could be the dishonest manager? And that the form of dishonesty in this parable is to say that actually we don't have to pay everything back according to what our record deserves. That we're all let off, that we're all set free. That Jesus wipes that clean and that's the dishonesty of it. That we're set free. If we went through our history and we're really honest about that, we would cringe, we would hate that to be exposed. But Jesus comes along and he wipes that clean. And it, yes, it's dishonest, but boy, do we need it. We need it, don't we, church? We need the love of Jesus to do that for us. That's the dishonesty in this parable. It's the grace. The grace is outrageous. It's totally unfair. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song, and then I'm going to suggest a couple of responses you might want to make just after we've been singing for a little bit. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin.